Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Morrissey Exchange. I am here with my friend and contemporary, Mr. Alex Henderson. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ben. Hello, listeners. This podcast, uh, we're doing a bit of a run through on the quarterlies that have come through and some notable moves in indices, commodities, that sort of thing. There's some interesting stuff in here, actually. So tuck yourselves in and let's have a bit of fun. All right. So first and foremost, a couple of the commodities. Iron ore is the obvious one, the one that everyone's talking about in the press. Mm. Iron ore hit $195, and, and we wrote about it, I think it was last week or the week before or something like that. There was talk in the media that as a result of disruption in, in Brazil, continued demand coming out of China, that the iron ore price could actually hit 200 bucks a tonne, which is absolutely staggering. And unfortunately, it's something we've we've gotten pretty wrong here. The uh, The numbers certainly indicated that the iron ore price should have declined by now to a more sustainable level. It will at some point. But by jingos, that is a big price for iron ore at the moment. The other one which I thought was really interesting was palladium. Mm. Palladium. So I, I bet most of you, like me to some degree, didn't really know what palladium was actually used for. But palladium is now running just shy of $3,000 an ounce. So it's very rare. It's a lot more rare than gold, as a matter of fact, but it's a bit like platinum. But what what it's used for is uh, manufacturing of catalytic converters, which, which are those converters that are used to remove toxic pollutants from, from engines, converts them into carbon dioxide and water vapour. And obviously, which Alex is going to talk about soon, there's, there's such a massive shift toward, well, certainly from... An investor's interest perspective, there's a shift towards electric vehicles and yep. those products that make up electric vehicles. That's just another of these commodities that's tearing along at the moment. Um, we've, we've still got gold loitering around that $1,700 mark. I still am so surprised that that hasn't pushed ahead with the staggering level of money printing and the negative rates that we've got at the moment. Bitcoin just shy of 60 grand. I still think that that's a bubble waiting to burst. What are some of the other ones that you're looking at, Alex, uh, as far as the the commodities and, and those sorts of products that are used in electric vehicles? I'll just firstly go back to gold, Ben. We have heard from our um, from our research team in Sydney, and that they've said that that gold price should be trading up around twenty one hundred dollars. Now that's it's obviously not there, but that's where the bond yields and, and the like suggest that it should be trading at. So there is a large gap between those two prices. On historical basis, they normally track quite closely the inverse yield to the gold price. And we've seen what some people call the jaws of life uh, opening up and not in a very nice way. The, the gold price is undervalued from where they sit. So at some point that will close. So. It's either a lower yield or a higher gold price, which is what we expect to happen. 
The jaws being the difference between where the price should be yes. and, and, and where the price currently is. So, yeah, it's a bit of a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Look, one other one. You said Bitcoin at fifty, what, $55,000 or $60,000. Just under sixty. dollars yeah. It's up and down and up and down. And um, I think it retreated 25% maybe recently. I've been reading a few things where it's actually tracking close to the lumber price. So... I think Timber's at about $1,300 at the moment. It was back in COVID times about $251. So look, I'm not comparing the two to each other, but the actual spikes and, and the, the run-up and correlation in price between lumber and uh, and Bitcoin is uh, tracking very closely. So predict one and you can probably predict the other. Over to you though on, on the next prediction on that. So I don't know, but you've certainly seen an increase in housing demand accelerating out of COVID and, and that's led to a shortage in, in lumber. It's the rule rather than the exception with the majority of commodities running on the um, the regrowth of the rest of the world. And yeah. we've got a few of these quarterlies coming through announcing decent numbers and a lot of the decent numbers from companies if they're commodity related. Well, obviously the the values are higher of these businesses, the sales are high because the commodity price is higher. And, and there's no real science in a lot of these mining picks. If the commodity price is good, you get better sales. So they are cyclical. That is something to, to bear in mind when you look at these mining companies, whether big or small. Commodity prices are cyclical. And of course, therefore the, the shares themselves are cyclical. But with the likes of aluminium running towards record highs again, uh, manganese, those commodities are staple components in South32, who recently released their quarterly update. That was another stunning result. Yeah. So 25% of the sales from South32's manganese, about 20% metallurgical coal, 30% aluminium uh, and alumina, and 15% nickel. They're all doing well. Everyone, all all of them doing well. It's not a big surprise that the South 32 price is running, notwithstanding the uh, the issues they had with the New South Wales government about a, a coal mine that they have there. Uh, but notwithstanding that, we do expect those to continue to press higher. So one very good quarterly report that was released about a week ago, that was South 32. We've got a 330 price target on it at the moment. It's currently sitting a little bit under three bucks, but a really good business there. Yeah, look, and they, they made a, uh, last year or the year before, I think, maybe $190 million in profit. And we forecast that to rise to above $800 million or $890 million in the next uh, year or so. So that is a sign that those underlying commodity prices are indeed rising. And you can see the leverage there going from $190 million to $890 million in basically two years. And so you can see that the price of South 32 has definitely risen on the back of that and along with the price target. So um, one other thing I noticed, you probably saw it too, was they've got $517 million in cash in the bank. That will be distributed either through dividends or some sort of capital management. They do have a buyback in place at the moment where they're buying shares back on the market quite aggressively. So that should be renewed along with all this uh, extra cash that they've got uh, in the bank. They could get acquisitive too, of course. One of the big mistakes that these big mining companies have historically made, whether it's Rio, BHP, any of these guys, take your pick. They always seem to buy at the top of the market. Um, So hopefully they've learned their lessons. I'm sure they haven't, but 
some of that money could be spent on acquisitions, but if it is, let's hope it's a wise decision. But yeah, at this stage, it's looking more like that they're going to use those proceeds to buy back stock, pay dividends and and manage that capital a little bit more wisely. Yeah, and um, one other thing, just circling back on on what they're doing and, and indeed into that um, ESG space is that they are selling their energy coal business in South Africa. They were on track to do that, um, I think, by the end of June. So we should see that sold. They'll sell it for a nominal value, maybe a dollar, but they will have to pay costs. Now, obviously, that does not sound good. It doesn't read very well but it's costing them quite a lot of money just to keep it open. Um, and again, it's, it's got ESG consequences. Um, it is costing them a lot of money. That's got most of their employees employed in that business. So if they can sell that, that will be a positive for the market as well. Coal, you say, Alex. Yes, So coal. yet another of my uh, poor picks, uh, Whitehaven, which has been mm. pretty good up until they released their last quarterly. So Atrium Coal's been a bad pick so far, and that was such a massive surprise. I've got to say, the the fact that the... Um, Alberta? The, yeah, the Alberta regulations were proposed to allow the mining in the area that they were operating, then all of a sudden they were just whipped back. It looks as though they're going to come back regardless, but we're going to have to wait 12, 18 months for the, um, for the new regulations to get passed. So... Yep. That was an annoyance, but on top of that, Whitehaven released a dud quarter. And the funny thing is, uh, even though Whitehaven is 80% thermal coal, it, that's not why the stock's been sold down. The stock's been sold down because the production out of one of the areas that they were digging into, Narrabri, it, it encountered a, an unusual uh, anomaly, which it, it just meant that it damaged the equipment they were able to extract less coal than they would have done otherwise. And it meant that the numbers were weaker than what we were hoping for. So that was a real disappointment with Whitehaven. However, the stock's been sold down from about a buck eighty-five to a buck twenty-two, which looks massively, massively overdone. Mm. So even though the reduction in sales has been taken into account by the market, um, Narrabri's production dropped from about one and a half million tonnes in March last year, but it's down about 29, 30% this year. Malls Creek still accounts for the majority of the production out of out of Whitehaven, and that was running at about 3.7 million tonnes. So I think a little bit of perspective needs to be taken there. Weather events, we saw those massive floods that occurred up north that had already had an impact on the amount of ore that was processed for Newcastle for Whitehaven. That saw the the processed coal that they put through reduced, but it also saw the coal price rise. So that was a actually a net benefit for them. So I do think Whitehaven is cheap. I know it's not popular. I know it's an ugly space. I think there's a lot of people out there jumping on the bandwagon, enjoying the fact that the stock's been sold down, but it really has been sold down unfairly and it certainly doesn't deserve to be trading around this dollar twenty odd mark. No, I agree. And as you said, look, it wasn't an anomaly. Um, the actual there was a fault in the um, in the ground that they were digging, um, and normally they would just dig straight through that fault, but it was a much larger than expected. So these these sorts of problems arise a lot when you're mining. Not that I've ever been a miner, mind you, but uh, they occur all the time. 
but this was a much bigger than expected issue and it, it just chewed through a lot of the equipment. So getting all of that packed up and redeployed and, and, and working properly has, has seen them uh, have production issues. But you just wonder, hopefully that you said that a few people might be enjoying the drop in price. I think one of them might be Nathan Tinkler, who uh, who is quite an agitator over there at Whitehaven. So. Yes. All right, so keeping with the quarterlies, I thought there was some interesting quarterly reports coming out of the medical stuff that we follow. Yes, a lot of them are small, um, but there's some really good businesses in there as well. So first and foremost, Osprey, that's one of the companies that has been a, a huge disappointment. They didn't provide particularly good numbers for the quarter. The number of units that they sold was up 14%. And the revenue was up about 20%. It's not enough. They're, they're operating at too low a level. Alex and I have been working on the numbers on this company, and I think they sold 1,900 devices for the quarter. Based on our numbers from two or three years ago, we're expecting yep. them to be up around 7,000, 8,000 units mm. by now. So they've fallen way, way behind. Just for those who don't know, Osprey uh, develops a device which is used to reduce the amount of dye that goes into the body to reduce the likelihood of uh, someone suffering from a, a sin event or a c- contrast-induced nephropathy, which is uh, severe damage to the kidneys. So it's got a good place, it's a good product, but they just haven't got the sales up and running anywhere near as fast as what they should have. One of the companies that did report well, and I'm a particularly big fan, as you well know, we just did a podcast last week or the week before with the CEO, Andrew Ronke, is Dorsa V. Dorsa V... They are a motion analysis technology business. They've got these wearable sensors, these wonderful little sensors which can determine um, what sort of damage people are doing to their bodies, whether it be in sport, whether it be from sport and they're at the physio or from a workplace or a work safety perspective. Their revenue for the quarter was up to around $450,000. It still seems small, I know, but they're growing off a fairly small base. It was up 16% on the, on, uh, the second quarter. So that's pretty good given that there's still substantial COVID-19 restrictions uh, around the world. Their new deals closed for the quarter were up um, to around $800,000, which is up 220% from the second quarter and up 304% from this time last year. So they're really starting to press ahead. The good thing about them there too is that um, they are most likely not going to need to come back to the market. So there's not going to be further games being played by traders trying to force this stock down to participate in the next capital raising. So that's a real positive for mine. One of the other points I wanted to make in relation to the actual technology, which they are some way ahead of their competitors too, for what it's worth. But in 2015, they had the sensor, the device, which was probably about the size or the combination of the devices that they had to use was about the size of an A4 piece of paper. So in 2015, they had that those devices of that size. It was a 20 hertz uh, machine or, or combination of machines. By 2020, uh, that had reduced in size to around five centimeters squared, I suppose. Um, so five, well, that's 25 centimeters squared. So five centimeters are along the top and about five or six down the side. So it's a much, much smaller device. The cost of producing it had reduced uh, to about a sixth of what it was in 2015. And the new product, which they're about to release, 
soon, hopefully, is a thousand hertz. It's about it's going to cost about the twelfth the cost that it cost to uh, produce the original device, and the capacity for picking up sensors and movements is through the roof thanks to the the fact that the the hertz has gone from twenty hertz originally to a thousand hertz. So. That's a really exciting business, and I think that they're going to continue to grow and continue to pick up work. They've got some really good global contracts, and I do look forward to a really bright future with them. The last one I wanted to touch on in the medical devices business is Visioneering. So Visioneering is a company that has created a contact lens, which has this unique capacity to direct light through the central component of the contact lens instead of accepting light throughout the entire face of the lens. The significance of that is it's very much targeting this pediatric myopia space. And what is important about that is that, as most of you would be aware, the kids um, or our kids are on devices all day long these days. And a lot of them are sitting inside, sitting on these devices, and the, the eyeballs are seeking light. There's not enough light going into the eyeballs. And the eyes are actually changing shape. So a lot of the old contact lenses are not fitting properly onto the eyes but on top of that with the change in shape of the eye it makes it incredibly difficult for the optometrists to bend the light under the old system of the old contact lenses around onto the retina effectively what the visioneering contact lens can do is because it accepts light through the central component of the contact lens it doesn't have to bend it and so it's able to improve the vision particularly of these kids with this pediatric myopia uh, it's enabling to them to improve their vision, notwithstanding the misshapen eyes. And in some cases, not just slower, but they've actually shown they can in fact reverse the significance of this, um, this pediatric myopia and the eyeball misshaping. So the numbers of people or kids who suffer from this, uh, you'll think I'm lying, but in some areas, particularly in Asia, are near 100% of kids under the age of 18. Uh, so the market is absolutely gigantic. So to cut to their quarterly numbers, they had a record uh, Q1 shipment, which was about 1.7 million bucks worth US. That was up 25% quarter on quarter. Their cash receipts are running at about $1.6 million for the quarter, which is up about 40%. And they successfully raised about $23 million through a capital raising not long ago. So they're moving along particularly well at the moment. They have practically no churn on their business. Their repeat customer rate is at about 99%. They've got 2,165 active US accounts. One account is basically saying uh, one optometrist who is their salesman. So they use the optometrists as the uh, distribution for this particular product. It's a company to keep your eye on, pardon the pun. It's a really good business which will continue to grow. And again, doesn't look as though it's going to need further money because of the money they've raised and the fact that they've got options in their back pocket, which they could exercise within the next two years. Just one final point there, maintaining ownership of the rights to develop into China. I think they want to complete a, uh, complete a clinical trial there. Once that is done, they'll probably look to partner up with a, um, with a company on the ground in China, but there is huge growth potential in China for them as well. And as well, they, they did suffer a from um, the, the tensions between the US and China as well, didn't they, Ben, back not that long ago with former President Trump. I think he uh, was um, inciting some 
problems between the two countries, so that didn't help. Uh, no, their, it, their look, push it definitely, it yeah. definitely didn't help. And, and Alex and I met with the CEO Stephen Snowden. And he he was pretty vocal about that, but it looks as though it's settled down from a business perspective to some degree, and they're able to to press into the country and really start to develop this product. Just two quick ones, if I may, Alex. Just yep. quickly, uh, very quickly on a couple of the property trusts that we follow. Very simple results centuria office fund it's been one of these trusts which has been trading significantly below their asset backing because of the fact that it's office we've emphasized time and time again that a number of these office properties and indeed some of the um, retail property trusts have been unfairly dealt with by the market because people investors just don't seem to be looking at individual stocks at the moment it's more of a broad brush approach if one sector's on the nose, everything gets sold down. And I think this has got a lot to do with the way industry funds trade, the way exchange-traded funds trade. But what that does create is the opportunity to pick up some value. So Centuria Office Fund, they're averaging about 97% occupancy across their portfolio. In the quarterly update, uh, they actually increased their cash flow guidance to about 19.7 to 19.9 cents per unit. So they're going to make about 20 cents per unit in cash flow. That's going to come out, a lot of it, as a dividend or a distribution, 16.5 cents, in fact, which puts them at a yield of sort of 7.5%, 7.6%. One of their sister trusts, Centuria Industrial, that one's actually getting expensive now. So we were buying that previously. They were trading at a discount to their asset backing as well. Um, It's a wonderful trust. And obviously, Industrial didn't suffer during COVID because people were buying stuff online, the Industrial Properties had their tenants, whether it be companies selling food, companies distributing books or whatever the case may be, they were trading their heads off. That hasn't changed. So what we've seen with Centuria Industrial is that the portfolio is in a particularly good position. They've got 2.6% of their leases expiring during uh, the remainder of 2021 and about 8.5% of the portfolio expires in a single year. So there's really, really low risk in there. Their occupancy went up from about 97.7% to 98.8%. So they're almost at 100% occupancy with a 10-year average uh, weighted average lease expiring. Problem there is they're just getting expensive. So they're now trading well in excess of their asset backing and on a yield of less than 5%. Did you have any others you wanted to run through? Well, on the back of that, the Century Industrial, they did recently revalue their, their property or most of their property book as well. So the assets went from $2.99 to $3.32. So that's a 10% increase higher. So, And on the back of that, the share price did rally. But it's still, um, you're right, it is getting expensive. If you compare it to, say, something like a Goodman Group, though, that trades it mm. three yeah, times true. its net asset backing, being $0.13 cents above it, it isn't as big a stretch. Admittedly, um, they are different businesses. Goodman has more of that, uh, the management side. So as well, Century had just gone through a, um, or will be looking for a merger with a company called Prime West. So they're very active in the in acquisitions and, and corporate activity. So it, it, it does give them an excuse and, and a reason to come back to the market a lot. So you do see quite a lot of updates from these companies. Alex actually raised a really interesting point too. I mean, one of the disciplines that we've maintained over the last sort of 20 plus years is only looking at quality property trusts if they are trading at a discount to the NTA. A lot of people don't 
adhere to that same discipline and, and you know, you can still be very successful with different investment strategies. But it's one that's worked really well for us to only buy these trusts if they're trading at a discount to assets. Got to be quality assets and they've got to be realistically valued. Wait for them to breach that asset backing and, and then sell them up there. And I suppose Centuria Industrial, the CIP I was just talking about, that's a good example. We're able to buy those at a discount to NTA. They're now at a premium to NTA. I don't think they're quite ready to be sold, but they're not far off it. And yep. it's just a good way of making money and what I would consider to be low-risk returns. Yeah, look, one other thing I'd like to talk about, it. we, we spoke last time on Archigos, um, where they're the hedge fund um, over in in the States. And they they had a, a particularly um, poor event where a lot of their, or they had to be sold up, they were insolvent. So a lot of their large bets in these big companies um, started to unwind and basically the bankers needed to step in. And what we saw was Credit Suisse have come out with a, a $5 billion capital loss. And, and that was on a $30 billion company. So, you know, this is a... We're talking a lot of money here, and, and I'm not just talking Credit Suisse either. Numira, Goldman Sachs, um, a lot of different companies have been caught up in this. So I saw the other day a blast from the past. Uh, Nick Leeson, you might have recalled, he was uh, in the 90s. He, he led to the collapse of Bearings Bank with a $1.3 billion loss. He was actually in the media extolling, uh, chastising the, the Credit Suisse risk management team saying, look, you just can't do that. So I thought it was a bit rich coming from Nick, but uh, anyway, he's right. Um, you shouldn't be having these sorts of um, issues on, on large cap stocks without taking the appropriate risk management. So that is um, one that... They're not that, bad, these guys. Jordan Belfort does the same same thing. So Jordan Belfort was the guy that was the core character or real life character in The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. And he comes out and loves to as Alex says, chastise these companies and businesses about doing the wrong thing. So, you know, these, these rogues like to come out and, and tell everyone else off when they were the ones who, who were the uh, the bad players, the bad actors in the first place. Look, this shouldn't have been unforeseen from a risk management perspective, but even more interestingly, in 2012, Bill Huang, forgive my pronunciation, he was actually convicted of insider trading. So the fact that Credit Suisse and all these other banks still went into business with them is quite astonishing, um, given that... The, given his history. Given his history, you know what it says to me is there's a lot of money to be made in these particular deals with by these banks, and, and that's clouded their judgment. So anyway, that's a, that's a small update for you. Who'd have thunk there'd be financial skullduggery in this world, eh? <laughs> I know, I know. All right, look, that's a pretty reasonable wrap-up. We don't want to bore you for too much longer. There's a lot going on at the moment, but that were some of the key points that we thought were worth uh, bringing through from the quarterlies. There's only a couple of days left in, um, in this quarter, so there'll be a few more quarterly reports to come through. You do tend to find the worst ones come towards the end, although we have been given um, some pre-release of the CV check results, which were excellent, so they're due as well. But all in all, our companies have generally reported pretty well. So look, till next time, thank you very much for listening. If you have any queries for any of the team here, whether it be myself, Alex, Lucy or Colleen, give us a call on 9268 shoot us an email or jump onto our website at www.morrisseygroup.net. Enjoy the rest of your day.
The Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shore and Partners Limited, ABN 24003221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shore and Partners Limited's disclaimer, as viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.